It's a rebuilding year in America, a year to restore the soul of the nation as President Joe Biden tenderly frames it for his constituents. It's a massive endeavour and it's what we're unpacking in our debut podcast series, Rebuilding America. I'm Stephen Horn, CEO of Web's Edge, where we connect issues and audiences, and you're listening to On The Edge, and we're taking an in-depth look at the main challenges facing the new Biden administration, from climate change to community cohesion, gun control, and new technologies that will play a role in the reconstruction. In this episode, we want to explore how America is to build a new social contract for equitable health. COVID has shone a light on health inequities in the country, driven by environmental and systemic racism. Dr. Georges Benjamin is the Executive Director of the American Public Health Association. He's been working tirelessly to address the root causes of health inequities long before COVID-19. Dr. Benjamin, first of all, thank you very much indeed again for uh, talking to us this morning. We really appreciate that. So thank you. Stephen, I'm glad I could be here. Thanks for having me. What is it now? We're probably 13, 14 months through this pandemic, hopefully coming out of this pandemic, maybe a chance to look back and we've got some data and statistics coming out of this. What, what, to what extent do you think that uh, the inequities that we've seen through COVID outcomes is caused by racism? We absolutely do think that the systems that we've created, our structures in our country and the United States have seriously contributed to the kinds of disparities that we're seeing. No question about that. Give us a few examples, if you would. Well, you know, when you think about what structural racism is, it really is the differentiation of goods and services, the availability of goods and services based on race. And in this case, we saw that people who had jobs that, uh, well, they had to go to work every day, you know, people who went on public transportation, people who were grocery store workers, were much more at risk for a disease in which you get from other people than people like me who could go home and you know, work from home. People who had homes that were smaller so that they got infected, they were going to infect the rest of their family members. You know, if you had two bedrooms and one bathroom, it's very difficult to isolate and quarantine. And then we saw what we call susceptibility. So we know that we've had these long-standing differences and disparities in terms of chronic diseases, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes. And we saw early on from China that people who had chronic diseases were much more likely to get sicker and die sooner. So when you see those disparities in any population, they're going to show up when a disease like COVID hits. What COVID's done, certainly where I am in the UK and in many other countries, if you like, has shone a light on inequities that have already existed. To what extent do you think that's been the case in the United States, where we're actually looking, you were magnifying, if you like, health inequities that we've lived with for far too long? Well, you know, in the United States, we've known about these since 1899, clearly, when one of our our famous philosophers, an African-American named W.E.B. Du Bois, wrote about it. And they've persisted. And so they're longstanding. Uh, We haven't done the right things to try to get rid of them. I think we all knew that this would be a a troubling disease. I don't think anyone thought the magnitude of these disparities would be what we would see. 
And do you think that this will leave a scar? Do you think that uh, communities that have been badly affected through COVID because of racism or other structural inequalities, whether this will persevere or do you hope that uh, we'll get through this? Well, we're going to get through it, but I think it certainly has raised the visibility to a broader group of people in our country here in the United States. Uh, And what I hope will happen is that people will now begin to do some real definitive things to eliminate these disparities. Now, I'm hopeful, but I'm concerned because, you know, we saw these disparities with the testing uh, when we initially responded to uh, COVID, and then we repeated many of the same mistakes when we started vaccinating people. So even within this year, with these clear disparities, we didn't seem to learn our lesson. What were some of those mistakes? Well, early on, we put testing sites in communities which people had difficulty getting to. You know, we like those wonderful drive-through testing sites, but we were telling people that if you were sick, you know, you should go to these sites. Well, if you have to, you don't have a car and you have to get on public transportation and you don't feel well, you're less likely to go get tested. Well, we did the same thing with vaccinations. We put them in large places where you had a lot of space so you could do mass vaccinations, but they weren't, as we say, in the neighborhood. The second thing we did was we didn't recognize early enough that people who didn't have access to broadband and computers would have less access to getting appointments. And of course, if you're a shift worker, when you had limited appointments, remember we had limited amounts of vaccine early on, by the time you got home from work, all the appointments were gone. And so those things, these structural things contributed to the disparities that we saw. So uh, the numbers of vaccinations in the United States are quite you know, eye-watering. I think we're talking about 200 million vaccinations. But do you think we will still have pockets of communities that the vaccinations won't reach for the reasons that you raise? You know, um, I've been doing public health for over 30 years now. And what I got to tell you is, um, yes, <laughs> every public health program we've ever had, we have these pockets, even though we think we've done a great job. We're always going to have pockets. And this disease, as you know, isn't going away. It's probably going to be endemic for a while, for sure. And as it kind of has peaks and valleys, comes and goes in terms of its prevalence, we're going to have populations that are going to have disease outbreaks. And I would argue that this is going to be pretty much like, you know, the measles outbreaks that we see. You know, we've got our hands around measles, but every now and then, We get a a big outbreak because of a population that has been vaccinated or has been inadequately vaccinated. And now we're seeing we continue to have hesitancy. We continue to have people that are resistant to getting vaccinated. And we have disease, as you know, which is is changing. So over time, I think we're going to have that as a real problem. You talked about in the last APHA conference, the virtual conference, which I thought went really well, by the way, you talked about this year's conference in Denver. You talked about the rebirth of America and you talked about a new contract uh, for health. And you talk a lot about health equity as a goal that we can achieve. How do we go about that? So I think, you know, America has an amazing healthcare delivery system. It's fractured. It's got lots of problems overall. And as you know, we spend twice as much as the next industrialized nation and don't get the best outcomes. Having said that, we think that's because we don't spend enough on the societal aspects of health, those things that enable you to get healthy and those things that, if you're not done right, can serve as a barrier. So transportation and housing and the environment, education, those things are very important. So we believe that 
if we focus enough on those things, making sure that people have access to education equitably, people have safe and affordable housing equitably, you know, we deal with homelessness in our country, make sure that we deal with income inequality. All those things that we know impact your ability to be healthy. You know, well-to-do people certainly get chronic diseases and they get diseases like everyone else, but it's the people that have the least resources that tend to do the worst, even when they have those diseases. And so we think if as a new compact, in terms of a contract with our country, for our people, to invest in our people, will result in better health. But how optimistic are you that that can be achieved? I mean, a lot of people in the aftermath of COVID and a lot of Black Lives Matter protests, a lot of people would be sceptical as to whether that contract could be entered into. You know, there's always a scepticism. But there are two ways to have a future. One is to let it happen to you, and the other is to design it yourself. And I think that the communities that we have and the people that are concerned about equity in our country have decided that we're going to design this future. And we're going to design a future where we have equity in everything that we do, that we give everybody the opportunity to achieve the best health outcome that they can, and we're not going to stop until we get there. We've gone through, what is it now, 100 days of the new administration, give or take. What's your take so far? You know, I think Biden, the president's done a wonderful job. You know, he has really stepped out and said, look, we're going to improve the health and well-being of all Americans, whether they're African-American or Asian or white, uh, whether they voted for him or they didn't, whether they're in the urban settings or rural communities. He has said, and I believe he has demonstrated so far, that he intends to, you know, to govern for all Americans. And by the way, he's also recognizing that the fate of America goes in a positive way if the rest of the world does well. So he's also looking at our international relationships to try to strengthen them. And I think that's going to help us as a nation. So what specifically can he do on the issue of health equity? Well, I think the first thing we can do is get the data, make sure that we're actually collecting the data by race, gender, ethnicity, occupation, so that we can make data-driven decisions. Far too often, we don't have the data. The second thing he can help us with is the timeliness of that data. You know, one of my former CDC directors said that public health are data archaeologists. You know, we're always doing things two years in the rear in terms of our data. We need to have the same timely data that the private sector, the business community, Amazon, you know, FedEx, all those big companies that make decisions in real time. We need to be able to make those kinds of decisions in real time. And I think the third thing we have to do is not tolerate intolerance and inequity in our country. We've got to deal with racism. We've got to call it out for what it is. We've got to name it, identify it, and then address the root causes of it. Now, I understand that there are personal biases and people that hate one another, and we have to work on that too. But it's these structural systems that give us exactly the kind of poor health outcomes that we know will result that we need to deal with first. Public health professionals have been through a lot over the last few years and the last year in particular. What do you think the mood of your members is going to be like? I think nurturing. I think that people have been cooped up, they're frustrated, they're angry, they're tired. And one of the reasons that I'm pushing very hard, assuming, you know, that the conditions permitted in terms of the infection, is getting people together. There are two things that APHA's meeting does. One, great scientific information. But the second thing it does is the fact of people feeling that they're at home. 
Um, I've had many people come to APHA for the first time and say, ah, I found my family. I found people that work like me, that care about the public's health, that have the same mission as me. And so getting those people together for them to, you know, talk to one another, cry, hopefully hug, if we can do that, but at the very least, you know, be together to share our, our common experiences, I think would be very healing for our nation. Well, Dr. Benjamin, thank you ever so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time and looking forward to the conference itself in November. So thank you. Stephen, thank you. Dr. Benjamin there is inspiring as ever. Now, I want to bring in Lily Farhan, co-director of Human Impact Partners, an organisation created to transform the field of public health to centre equity and build collective power with social justice movements. Lily, thanks again for taking the time with us this morning. We really appreciate that. So thank you. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. So I guess I'd start by, you know, asking you the question that we uh, led with, uh, you know, Dr. Benjamin about, which was, would you agree that people of colour have been disproportionately affected by uh, COVID? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, there is no question it's borne out in the data and it's borne out in people's lived experiences that people of color have disproportionately gotten um, exposed to the virus, sick and died at rates much higher than their white counterparts. And, you know, I mean, in my opinion, the truth of it is, is it's because of the way in the U.S. that kind of our history of racism and capitalism have kind of intertwined to pattern our work and community environments in ways that just put people of color and lower income folks at higher risk. And so, you know, what I like really think about is like the New York Times, for example, last year came out with a really interesting study and set of facts that indeed showed that black and Latinx people were disproportionately affected across all age groups, across urban, suburban, rural areas. They got infected at higher rates, they died at higher rates. And I think what was really interesting about those higher case counts is that it showed that some people were getting exposed more, right? So it was about who was getting sick in the first place. I think the national story was really around like people are dying because of underlying health issues that increase their risk. And that really aligns with kind of the US, I think sort of personal responsibility kind of narrative and frame that we can just be so myopic about and so much of our politics are built around. But actually what those higher case counts showed is that you couldn't necessarily blame the individuals for having to work on right. the front lines, right? They had to drive the right. buses, they couldn't work from home, they had to work in the grocery stores so we could have our fruits and vegetables, so we could get our Amazon packages delivered, so we could get our takeout. And so really like those higher exposure numbers were much more about who could take advantage of the recommendations to work from home and socially distance and who couldn't. And that, in my opinion, and in the opinion of our organization, is really about who historically has been patterned to you know, access certain kinds of jobs and educational systems and who hasn't. And so in many ways, I, I really don't think there's a way to talk about that disproportionate effect among people of color without talking about kind of the history of structural racism in this country and how it uh, has a very interesting relationship with kind of capitalism and work settings and work environments here in the US. Do you think that the uh, COVID response, you know, now we're talking about testing and, and vaccination, do you think with that we've learned any lessons 
from what you've just been talking about? <sighs> well, I, I do. So I think different sectors of society have learned different lessons and made different connections. So I think the communities and the you know, grassroots organizations that have been organizing for decades to improve working conditions and improve housing conditions and improve you know, and to decrease criminalization and incarceration. I think they relearned a lesson they already knew, which is that the risk factors for COVID, as with any other health issue, are really structural. And so I think many of those groups were really demanding structural interventions. Right to protect people who are affected. I think the public health community also knew that lesson, but because their skill sets and their analysis of power are, I would just say a little more behind <laughs> um, or maybe less sophisticated, there was just a disconnect from being able, like there was sort of an inability to take action on those structural factors. And so in many ways they defaulted to sort of doing the things that public health right. does really, really well around contact tracing and kind of approaching it epidemiologically and not really doing the advocacy necessary to kind of get these structural reforms in place that would actually decrease exposures to both COVID and so many other health harms. And then I think the general public, I, I honestly, you know, my mom is an immigrant to the US. I've worked in public health for 20 years. She still doesn't fully understand what public health is and public health does. And I think of her, she's always like, what's that expression? Like my, my bellwether. Right. I don't know yeah, if that's yeah. the right word, but you know, she's like my person, like, okay, if she is like up on this, then I think like something is changing in society. Right. If she's not up in it, then it's like some small group of us that is obsessed and like, actually it's not representative of what's happening in larger society. And so I think like the general public's learning has definitely evolved and, and has accepted maybe this one idea, which is so important for public health, which is like the health of one of us is bound up in the health right. of all of us. Right. And so that is a very important learning that's happened. And I think the question will be to what extent will kind of the general public carry that forward and sort of start to shift the narrative, I think, about what creates health in the U.S. more broadly. Right. So. Uh, yeah, different lessons for different sectors or audiences. I think it's interesting what you just said, though, with the grassroots organization. Did you kind of think that uh, all the momentum and the emphasis that's uh, behind it, all the passion and energy is uh, going to be a force for good? I do. I mean, I 100% do. If you just even look at what's happened at the federal level, obviously, since the election, I mean, they're, you know, the new administration is talking about racism, they're talking about climate justice, they're talking about supporting families, the American Rescue Plan, the American Jobs Plan, like, we just really haven't seen that kind of investment in communities and families in decades. And I think as part of that, like the administration is really sort of throwing off this yoke of right-wing economic dogma that I think has disallowed those kinds of investments in the U.S. And I really attribute that to the organizing that grassroots communities have done. I do not believe that the administration would have come to right. that through its own benevolence. I think that they saw um, that people were in the streets all of last year demanding justice, demanding accountability for a set of harms that, you know, didn't just come about because of the murder of George Floyd, but had, you know, have pre-existed 
for a very long time. And I think they saw that the tides were turning and that there was real power. There was real people power. There was real narrative power. There was resources aligning. And so I, I don't think that we would have seen the shift that the federal administration that the White House is making if not for the organizing and advocacy and activism of grassroots organizations. They have been, um, particularly over the last administration, I think, really doing a good job of kind of organizing impacted people, bringing them together, trying to identify the solutions that we need to try to you know, advance those kinds of economic and social and environmental um, changes that we need yeah. to reduce all these health inequities that we're seeing. So what are some of the things that you think we need that will sort of underpin the new social contract, if you like? What are, what are the sort of things that we should be investing in now to make sure this doesn't happen again? Yeah. So I think that's two questions. So one is like, what does the new social contract look like? And then like, what are the investments? So let me just, if, if you forgive me, I'll just take them really sure. quickly separately. Um, or I'll try to be quick. And so I think, you know, this question about a new social contract to me is really about kind of transforming American society as a whole, right? So ours, I think the social contract that we've had sort of to date has really prioritized this pull yourself up right. by your bootstrap mentality and this neoliberal growth model that puts kind of corporations and profit on a pedestal. And I think that, you know, the results of that are like the highest levels of income and racial inequality that we've seen, you know, even in comparison to the 19th century Gilded Age. And so I think uh, what that means to me is that if we want a sort of new social contract for health, we have to think about transforming like our housing systems, our work and caregiving systems, our safety systems, our health systems, our voting systems, all of these in a way that prioritize kind of people and dignity and centering those who've been most harmed by these dysfunctional systems to create, I think, stability in people's lives. And so then to answer the sort of what are the investments and policies that we would want to see, our organization, Human Impact Partners, actually last year, kind of in the midst of COVID, and then again, um, with the transition in the White House, we put out what we call these policy right. platforms. So last year, it was the policy platform for COVID response and recovery. This time, it's the policy platform for the Biden administration's first 100 days. And to be totally honest, the platforms are actually not that different. And again, like this is the thread through everything I've said in the sense that the structural risk factors for COVID are the same for any other health issue. And so both of the platforms kind of focus on what I think of as bold and sort of edgy actions that the administration can take to address economic inequality, housing insecurity, systems of state violence, and the gutting of the public health infrastructure. And so for economic inequality, that means things like enacting paid leave, right. family leave, paid sick leave, ensuring livable wages, universal basic income. On the housing side, it's about enacting strong moratoria on evictions and foreclosures and homeless encampment sweeps and investing in you know stable and affordable housing. And then I think on the state violence side, we really are thinking about reducing the number of people, freeing people from jails and prisons and immigrant detention centers, because we know that they don't actually promote health and they don't actually serve the purpose that they're intended to serve. And thinking about divesting from systems of criminalization and policing and investing in community-based health and safety. So those are the kinds of 
actions that we're calling for, and all of them have policies that have been, you know, introduced at the federal level in Congress. You see them in state legislatures across the country, and a lot of them are what those grassroots um, organizing groups and the communities they organize have been calling right. for. So I think we're trying to lead based on kind of what we're hearing from allies and partners in other social justice spaces. That all sounds good, right? And that all sounds that that's uh, heading in the right direction. But do you, do you honestly feel now that we're at a tipping point, a turning point, if you like, where we're going to see the fruition of all this work? We've been here before, right? So are the outcomes going to be different? I mean, that to me is the eternal question. That question, are we at a tipping point? Is this the time where changes will happen? I think that we have to assume the answer to that question right. is yes, because otherwise, where will people get the energy and the sure. motivation and the inspiration to keep fighting to kind of create the society and transform our society in ways that actually like allow people to be free and live lives filled with dignity? Right. So I believe the answer to that is yes. And I think we'll only know when we look back in time. That's kind of the uh, social science challenge. But I think we have to assume the answer to that question is yes. Well, Lily, look, thanks ever so much indeed for joining us. That, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. So thank you. Thank you, Lily, for contributing to the conversation on our debut podcast on Rebuilding America. There is much, much more to come and we invite you to tune in to the next. Thanks for listening. This is On The Edge and I'm Stephen Hall.